You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode, we sit down with Bob Carr for part two of our interview with him, who has for the past 30 years been an active angel investor as well as in business development, founded and growing some of those powerful networking groups in Silicon Valley. His current company, LinkSV, is an online information service providing curated, detailed information on companies here in Silicon Valley. On this week's episode, we continue where we left off and we talk about what is Link SV? How can one create a network that leads to being able to access anyone and advice for people on how to have fun and enjoy life? This and much more on today's episode. And also, we encourage everyone to write a review on iTunes and any other podcast platform to help encourage and share this information. All right, now let's start the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. These companies that are able to attract these top people to be advisors or on their board, what type of incentives do they normally give them to convince them to do that? Okay, so that kind of varies across the board. And I'm involved in a bunch of these companies. Some companies know that they really want to say thank you with early stock. Okay. And so they're very willing to give shares. There, there have been some formulas in the past for this. There's always been formulas for board, for board members and for, for board advisors. And it could be a half a percent, could be a percent, it could be whatever. From my perspective, given the opportunity and given the person you're bringing in, nothing matters. It's, 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 where that, it's, about that, it's about that situation in that environment. You, you could have some guidelines. But it does bring me to a situation that I'm concerned about as an investor we can talk about. Years ago, and again, I'm not exactly an expert on this, but it, it'll, you'll, you'll get the flavor. Years ago, companies would create a valuation for their company. And they would say, I want to be an investor. What's your company worth? Well, I think I can, I can justify the company's worth $2 million or $5 million. Well, how do you, how do you justify that valuation? Because I've been working this with so many man hours and we have IP going on and all this kind of stuff, okay? So the game changed. Somewhere, I'm not sure when it changed, but I think the lawyers and, and the VCs changed it. I'd love to, I'd love to hear the inside story, inside, inside baseball on this. So now when I go to look at a company, I'm offered stock in a company on a convertible note, which you're probably familiar with, right? And so because I'm an early investor, can you go into more detail of what a convertible note is? Now, when I'm offered the opportunity to get in, into a company, it's not like I'm talking to the founder and the founder told me the company's worth $2 million, $5 million, $500,000, whatever. And I know that coming in, I can get a 10% stake in that company. I like that idea because I was early on. Why was I deserving of getting a nice stake in the company? Well, let's think about it. I'm doing all the heavy lifting. I'm coming in at a point in time when they have no customers. They have no IP. They have no co-founders. They have no no. It's early stage, right? Okay. That's a big lift. That's when all the heavy risk is. Everything I've been invited to more recently, even the th things I'm invited to that are very early on because they've already have a lawyer involved, in some cases not, but basically speaking, the new strategy is 
between the lawyers and the VCs to create a note, an IOU. It's called a convertible note. And so when I make an investment in the company, I'm getting a convertible note. And that note is convertible to a point in time when the A round investor comes in and then they set the valuation for the company. It looks like this because the A round investor comes in and says exactly what I talked about earlier. Well, tell me why I should invest in the company and put in $10 million or whatever at a $10 million valuation. And you're going to justify how you did all that. And you're going to tell your very best story. And the investors are going to push back everywhere they can because they want to get in at the best possible valuation of the company. And they're going to tell you they have to get a strike, they have to strike a good valuation because at some point we're going to try to attract the B round investors. And if we came in at $8 a share and we can't make it worth $16 or $20, how can my investors in the A round make money? So we have to, so unfortunately, even though you're trying to get us to invest at eight, we want it at four. Well, this, is, this happens all day long, right? And this is the story. So I don't know, as the angel investor, I have no idea what the valuation is going to be. So anyway, it's going to be whatever it is. They're going to pound it out. And somewhere between the story that you told as the startup company and the investors that you're trying to get to come in your company, you're going to cave because you need the money. And you hopefully you're going to find the right, if you're lucky, you found the right investor or investors, you got the right valuation, and you got a great group of people who can help you grow the company. If you're unlucky, you're going to get some investors you're not, you're concerned about a little bit. You don't know their track record for the commitment they're going to make. And they struck a deal, which is tough for you. So let's suppose it wasn't such a good deal. It, was, it wasn't the $8 we were shooting for, it's $4. So my stock is going to be pegged to the $4. And what did, what did I get for all my big risk? You know what they do? They give you a discount. So, so if they paid $4, then if I'm very early on, I'm one of the first guys in the door, I got a 20% discount. If I came in maybe a six months later because they raised $300,000, I'm one of the early investors in the $300,000 group, and they raised another $500,000, those people got a 10% discount. So big deal. I got a 20% discount because on day one, I invested in this young company and they didn't make it, I'm dead. If they did make it, I got a 20% discount for all the heavy lifting that had to, be, had to go. I don't think that the risk is commensurate with where they want to come in. They're going to come in with a team, with all these things that are happening, and I got a 20% discount to that. I'm not interested. I'll never invest again in a company where I'm, I'm invited by some highfalutin, big deal VCs who think that they can, because they're, they're all, that, all, all their importance and all they can do, and I'm lucky to get a discount because to be on that team, not interested. That's, that's the story. Now, this may be the prevalent way things are going, but I've noticed in my circumstances that I've been able to walk around that a little bit. I'm not going to take that line down. I'm not going to do it. I'm just not interested. Wait, Bob, can you share some stories of companies you may have either mentored or invested in over the years? Well, I've invested, uh, I've invested in probably 30 companies and probably way too many in the dot-com era. My very best and most exciting thing, by the way, which is, you could edit out, is that some friends I had back in the early days were so, uh, so desperate to go back to New Jersey where they came from 
that his wife was a secretary at a technology company, and the company was, wasn't worth a nickel at, at that point in time. And she said, Bob, would you, could I give him my worth of stock? I just have to get bus fare back to New Jersey. She gave me her stock. I put it in my state deposit box. And, and about eight years later, I got, I, in the mail, I got a check for $67,000 from a company in Japan called Yamaguchi Pharmaceutical. So that's always today will always be my biggest hit ever. Okay. So dispensing with all that, I think a couple things that are happening right now are probably worth talking about. So, one of them could be a company um, called uh, Limelight Health, and the founder of that company is a close friend of mine that I've mentored for years. In, in before, he, before he became a technologist, we were good friends, and I was always giving him advice. He was quite a bit younger than me, and so we had lots of conversations. And uh, Jason had a chance to, uh, to start a company, and that company was focused on when the Obama, Obamacare came in, there was a huge opportunity to having to do with the, with the enrollment, by the way. And so Jason has had a lot of close friends that were involved in, in the 58 counties in California. And so they had a very a strong ear of all of the counties to be able to conduct the enrollment because, the, because there was a chance to enroll all these people in, in Obamacare. So he quickly set off to start a company surrounding Obamacare and enrollment. That company pivoted as companies will pivot to different opportunities. And that company pivoted to another thing another project. And that project was going to be the, the major life insurance companies were interested in what he was doing because they wanted to get, they wanted to be out, if you can picture this, in somebody's living room, talking to a customer to be able to give real-time quotations to people rather than we'll, we'll go back, do a plan for you and come back and see you in a week and a half when you've cooled off on the whole thing, right? So right there in the living room, they could have, they would have instant information. They were on that project. And they were so successful going down, this, going down this road and learning things along the way that they then went to, a, to their final project where they are now in that they're literally speaking, they have created software to allow companies that are creating quotations to be able, uh, platforms, to be able to build these quotations in a much more ready fashion, but not for the end user, not for the last mile, but to create for these companies to create uh, platforms to be able to put out to their people and so forth. This has been a very successful investment for me. I know already that I had an opportunity to get a six and a half times my return on this last investment because he said, Bob, if you ever want to get it, I know, I know the current investors would love to buy you out. So I'm, I'm very happy with where they're going. I get on a conference call with them probably every two months with Jason, where he, he updates the angel investors about what's going on. I'm not so sure that we have any great contributions anymore to make, but, but if we do, in that conversation, we're able to talk about stuff that's going on. And hear about where they're headed. And I'm very excited about Jason. And I've watched him grow uh, as a first-time CEO and the challenges he's had. And he's had a lot of challenges, in H certainly in HR, attracting people, moving their facility, just a bunch of stuff. So I've been very excited to, to watch him grow his company from right from the very first, right from the get-go. Another company I'm very, very involved in, and this gets back to my kids. One day, my son my son, by the way, founded a company called Guayaki. We'll talk about that. We're drinking it as we speak. And one day he was paddleboarding up in the Gulf Islands. My, kid, my son David lives up in, uh, off of Vancouver in the Gulf Islands on an island called uh, Salt Spring Island. He was out there paddleboarding with a good buddy is, Isaac. And Isaac was telling him, he, was just, he had to start this company now. It's in his bones. It's ready to go. And, and he has two co-founders, and they've been consultants in the industry for a long time and all about... Uh, fabric and yarn and all this. And David said, listen, Isaac, I so much believe in you that, that I'll just, let me help you. So they, they got off onto land. David wrote him a check for $50,000. Uh, 
He called his little brother, Stephen. Stephen called me and said, Dad, can we put the other 50000 in? So Stephen and I put the other $50,000 in. That all went in to get their IP. All went in to, get, to hire a lawyer to start getting IP to make a trail here. The exciting thing about this company is that Isaacs and his two founders have a, a great expertise in the, about yarn and, and, and the water conservation anyway. So the product they built, they set out to build, was a fabric that would replace cotton. Now, as you know, cotton and probably almonds require an enormous amount of water. And so being able to, to create a product that, was, that would create an alternative to cotton was a big deal. Within the first year, within the first six months, Isaac went and made a presentation in New York with 250 other companies and won the whole thing. And they got a, got a grant for $650,000. Pretty impressive. Of course, we're talking to Isaac all the time about what he wants to go do, and we love it, and we're breathing it in all the time. But to hear him get validation for other people that don't know him is a very exciting thing. Then he went to Stockholm, Sweden, and made another presentation, in a, in a, which was even more, even more, had more um, cachet to it than, than but that had a $250,000 prize. He won that prize. But in that particular presentation, he got the eye of Adidas and Converse and Nike and Levi's, and they just swarmed him. And they loved what he was doing. In fact, he, when he went to Levi's and he showed this new fabric, and they asked him to stretch it, and because you, you can, Levi's has stretchable fabric, expandable pants, they couldn't believe it was, it was made without all this DuPont and all this chemicals in it, chemical-free product. And so now, Cut to two years later, we're working with major, major manufacturers around the world, so many I can't even tell you, who love what they're doing. And we have big contracts from these companies to supply them. So, right, so in, that, in this industry, for example, we might be working on a, a major rollout that Nike is going to be doing in the end of 2021. And the product scale of the suite of products could go from right now, we're working on things for shoes and for whatever. But it could be to clothing, it could be to anything. Once you get into these companies and they like what you're doing, the scalability of the, the breadth of the product line and the, and the scalability of, the, of where it could go is enormous. Now, the exciting part about all this, to let you know it's for real, is that uh, these companies have now contacted all their manufacturing uh, facilities around the world. So they've been introduced to these facilities around the world so that the, these facilities will organize their manufacturing to be able to handle all this. So we're in, tai we're in Taiwan, we're in, in Vietnam, we're all over the world. So now we're hand in hand with all this. Now, this product that they're creating this product from is from agricultural waste. It could be pineapple, pineapple stalks, banana stalks, whatever. It's the waste of agricultural products, which produces a fiber. It's the product of the waste that hits the cutting room floor when people are cutting and building, you know, they're cutting all this manufacturing, all this waste, because after all, where does all this waste go? It gets bundled up into, two into these packs and it goes into dumps. It goes into landfills. So now we're doing three things. We're taking waste from these companies. They're getting credits for giving us waste. We're taking the waste and we're converting it to product. We're also saving enormous amounts of water because this new product, which is now being produced, and I've seen Isaac walk around in a new suit produced by this, you know, by this new product. So now we're producing a product which doesn't take any mirror, anywhere near the amount of water. And if you look at the aquifers in California, not only do we have water crisis in California, 
But a lot of these places are sinking because we're stuck. Like the, the agricultural people are getting much more allocation for water because they, they got to water all the produce, right? And some of the biggest produce, and I'm not an expert at this, but I know enough from learning about this that, you know, the things like almonds and rice take a lot of water. And to take it one step further, Isaac was a spe- featured speaker at a conference at Cal- UC Davis, Cal- University of California Davis, on this topic. And now all these rice growers are all excited about converting converting their land to, to growing hemp them rather than, so this is another story, and I think there may be a separate corporation being formed in this regard. So anyway, everything he touches, people have an enormous amount of interest. So going back to, remember our earlier conversation about, so what are you going to build and who's going to buy it? I was, I've always been interested in who's your customer. Isaac has turned the table on me. All I'm hearing about are all these incredible stories going on about customers who are really interested. On top of that, there's a huge technology component because he was invited to, invited to the Sir Edmund Hillary Foundation where they take eight people a year in New Zealand. You may know about this from your travels. Go to this incredible found, uh, project in New Zealand and in there, he must, met an incredible guy who was one of the foremost guys in Bitcoin. And so Isaac always wanted to tag all the product from the farmer to someone walking into Nima Marcus to buy, the, to buy that valuable sweater or whatever. Everything needs to be tagged. Well, Bitcoin is the ultimate product for all this, the ultimate solution. So now we're building a technology component to all this, which we think will help us, help us one, save an enormous amount of money because uh, he was already was going down that path before Bitcoin, thinking about te- how you're going to track all this. To one, that's going to save a huge amount of money, but it's also going to give us a technology valuation as we become much more of a technology company, along with now having these incredible companies that we're talking to. So, I mean, Isaac's problems are how to scale the company. I mean, his problem is how can we, we're looking for key people. And now, by the way, we're trying to make sure that we have money in the bank. To, so that's why I'm involved right now talking to the A-Round investors who want to talk to me. So I was on a conference call only last Monday with the other major, so I'm the, large, I'm the largest investor, my, my two boys, but the other two, other second largest investor out of New York so we're all on the phone talking with this potential investor, which goes unnamed for the moment. But they wanted to know all about what we thought about the company and our experience. They wanted to know how, what we thought about valuing the company, which really I thought was funny because we're across, we're at different positions. And they also wanted to know what we were going to be doing for the, and I said, listen, we've already done our job. We've been helping these people from square one and we want to do more, but we want to know what you're going to do for the company. Because every, every venture investor is going to raise or give you capital, but they're also saying, you know, we're the right investor for you because we understand your space and our people are, you know, are going to open up lots of doors, right? That's their pitch. It's not just the money today. You want to know what they can do to help you. So I want to know what you can do to help us. So that was a very lively conversation both ways. It was very fun to be part of. And, and I can't say that I'm involved in all these kinds of, but that happens occasionally, but I, that's a great place to be. But so in this case, we're in the process of raising, of doing this A round now because the company needs to raise their capital. And the issue now is when we're going to be raising the B round. So I talked to you earlier about you're always raising money. The minute you raise your A round, you're always looking at the milestones, what you're going to be able to accomplish, and the story you're going to be able to tell your B round. Because if you're going to raise $8 million here, the next round is going to be at $25 million or $30 million, or how you're going to justify that. So this is an ongoing story. You're always raising capital, and, there's, and everyone's always talking to everybody else about the contribution they're going to make. And so it's, it's a, it's, so it's more fun to be talking to a company that's on the rise as a company that's flat or declining. Those are very, very difficult conversations. 
So to find out more information about blockchain, Bitcoin, IoT solutions, check out our past interviews with Ben Bartlett, Aman, that go into great detail about the whole supply chain and tracking. So wait, Bob, I did a little research. You have connections with Venture Lending, a Venture Lending firm. What is Venture Lending and what does it do? Well, first of all, think about this. Uh, traditional banks can only lend when they have assets to lend against. So a lot of these small technology companies have nothing that they can lend against. Covenants of the bank don't allow them to make loans. So the first thing the banks want to do is they want to see you raise venture capital and put that money in the bank. And that's, when, that's why Silicon Valley Bank is so successful because the VCs are investing that money. So five or $10 million goes, goes in the bank. They're not deploying all that money rapidly. The bank gets used to that money. But try to be a company who hasn't raised any capital or is struggling to raise capital or has raised some capital and can't raise any more capital. There's a whole lot of people out there that are lending money to companies. They're leasing companies. They're leasing on capital equipment. So venture lending, I think, would be characterized as companies that are willing to make investments beyond the covenants of what the traditional banks are willing to lend. So I happen to be an investor, a new investor, by the way, in a company called Costello Kirsch. I really like what they're doing. They've been doing it for 30 years in Silicon Valley. They're not newbies at this. And they're on their seventh fund. Well, that's pretty exciting for me. And the turnover, in the, when I say turnover, the number of companies who have failed, where, they've been, where they actually failed on their covenants, has been under 5%. I mean, it's, it's amazing because they are investing in companies they believe in. And also, too, by the way, they are standing at the head of the table. So when you're in a senior, when you're sitting in a very in a very senior position, ahead ahead of the preferred shareholders, you're the first person to get to be paid a debt. Even if you go out of business, you have some assets. There's something left. You can go. In other words, the classic. You may have uh, two million dollars of debt and six hundred thousand dollars of assets. Well, these people are the first at the door, so they do not get stiffed very often. But in the meantime, they are paying a handsome reward to their investors, much greater than you'd get in a traditional investment. I think the, the program I'm involved in is going to have about a 16% internal rate of return or something. So that's very good. I'm excited about that. So how can I help them? Who are they looking for? They're looking for these companies that are probably four to five years old, stalled a little bit, have something. In other words, here's the point. The company is willing to pay the high rate of interest because they're going to pay what's going to happen is they this venture lending company is probably going to write them a check for a million dollars, and they're going to pay back $130,000, which is the 30% interest, monthly over the course of, the, over, of a three-year period. We're going to lend them a million dollars that they're going to repay over a three-year period at a rate of 13%. What they're betting is, what the venture lending firm is betting on, and what the borrower is betting on, that they're so excited about the way they're pivoting their company or they're, they're about their opportunity, that they are willing to take that high rate of interest. It's not usurious. It's the rate that companies charge to take this kind of a risk. So again, they are looking at lots of companies. Okay, they, they get referred companies all the time, but they have to step back and be very careful the companies they're looking at that the company does have a good opportunity. They don't want to be sitting at the door, at the wolf at the door collecting money collecting bad debts. 
So they're constantly getting referrals, and they're getting referrals from banks, other VCs, investors, and fortunately, because they're well-established, they're getting a nice flow. I'm helping with, with introductions as well. So I like them because they're, they get a chance to look at good companies, companies with high, with high opportunities, and so that's what's going on. And for there's probably a number of companies. I've talked to other companies in the past that are, but they're, they're probably looking for harder assets. In this case, we're looking more at the entrepreneur's vision of what they think they can really do, and we want to hear a good story. Yeah, that's what's going on. And you've also founded many different networking groups in Silicon Valley. What was your inspiration for the first group, and what did you want to accomplish with it? Well, stepping back for a second, in my 35 years in the insurance business, I certainly got a lot of business through the, through the network, through people working together. So I always believed in alliances. And so in those days, my alliances could be with lawyers and accounting firms and whatever, but I always wanted to meet good people that were also calling on the same kind of customers. So I carried that forward. And when I retired from the insurance business and reloaded, whether I was investing in companies or starting Link SV, I loved to meet other people who had worked really hard to have good clients and good prospects because I always felt that if somebody was willing to, to, to take the risk to introduce you, after all, they're risking their client relationship. So why would they? Well, I think when they do, they get a bigger seat at the table with their customer. Because it, when, I can give you a classic story. One of my friends was out visiting a, a, corp, a corporate potential corporate client. He was sitting in front of the client. And all of a sudden, the guy's on the telephone yelling and screaming on the phone at somebody. And poor George is sitting there waiting for the guy to get off the phone. And when he did, it, when he was upset because the contractor hadn't built out the bathroom in his, in his big executive office correctly. And George said, well, you know, I'm with a with a, you know, I'm in the real estate business. Our people can, we design that stuff. We can correct. Anyway, the guy calmed down. He talked to George about it. George had one of his people come out. They solved the problem. And what George conveyed was, which became very much in my mind, that when you're sitting in front of somebody and, and, you're there, and they're your client, no matter how well you know them, you're solving that problem. If you can help solve a problem in another area of their business, you're now a trusted advisor. So I've been around the trusted advisor concept for many, many years, and I've talked to many people about it, and people understand it. But you don't take it lightly. It's not like introduce me to all your friends. It's like, hey, if I'm doing some things here, and if, if we're, it looks like we're aligned and I can help you, will you go at risk and introduce me? Well, people do it all the time. They do it one-off. They don't do it in the form of large organizations. Everybody has a good friend. Lawyers get the referrals from people, and they give referrals back. So do accounting firms. Everybody does it on a one-off basis. I'm more interested in doing it in a more organized basis. So, for example, for the Angels Breakfast Club we, we got started years ago was a group that we did with the VCs. I started a group called Epic. Epic was, was a group of, uh, this was all service providers in the Silicon Valley, and I, they were invited by me and by my friends and by other people. At one point, we had 300 people in the group. My objective, of course, was to get people together and also lend a hand, lend a hand to people who we're not that well connected, but we're good people. And again, I judge people by, the, by what's in their heart, what's in, the, what the, what's in their character, they're conscientious. But again, some of these smaller people can't scale well and they don't have resources. So if they can meet other good people and they can then deliver by, by making alliances with other good people, they can begin to scale as well. So we ran that group for probably 15 years. The reason I fell back a little bit on it was for two reasons. One, it became harder to have meeting at 7.30 in the morning and and over time, that's the failure of groups because you're trying to get your kids to school and do a lot of other things. And so 
eventually we moved that to an online venue. So we still have the group running. It's, we still have a Yahoo group for it. And so people go on and they'll post a request. But I'm not working at it as conscientiously as, as I have in the past. So here's what happens when you have a group. What's the failure in groups or how do you make groups work, run well? You have to have people that are passionate. They have to be passionate on wanting to support your concept. It just can't be me putting a group together with a lot of people saying, well, gee, oh, where's my bit? How, what's, what's happening next? No. Anybody who joins part of a group has to be a group of the willing. They have to be passionate about the concept and passionate about wanting to help you make it grow. So as I'm starting things together these days, anybody I get involved in a group has to be really passionate about the idea, has to take ownership of the idea, and wants to help me make it grow. And I'm on a, I have a group like that right now, and I'm really excited about it because everybody there knows that it's only going to be successful if we all work together at it. But what have I joined together? It's a fintech group, and so we have people that are from all walks of fintech. We have a, we have a, a good law firm. We have a good accounting firm. We have a good group of inter, interim financial people. We've got people doing onboard globally. We've got HR people. We have property. We have liability insurance people. We've got executive search people, and one from each group. And so it's a very, very good. So I'm very excited about the concept of it, but I'm going, to, I'm going to work very conscientiously to make sure that although we may only be meeting physically two or three times a year, that people individually are getting together, sharing ways they can help each other, and so forth and so on. So that's the, that's the new venue. And it's, it's not easy. And nobody's doing it on a regular basis, but I'm doing it. Bob, these groups sound amazing, but what is the best way to find the key people in a group, the key connectors? Okay. By the way, if I find a key connector, I might start a group around them. So on this particular group I started, I knew the next group that I wanted to start. I wanted to, to be a part of a, of a good organization that could, could, could really grow in value um, having a network, network around them. So I started the group with, uh, with Kathy Ryan. They have a very strong group called the Rose Ryan Group. They have 135 people. They're customer-facing, and they solve all kinds of accounting issues for early-stage companies. They're one of many organizations that do that in the Valley, but it's a very established uh, category. And certainly the young companies who just raised venture capital or no capital cannot afford to hire a full-time CFO at $200,000 a year or whatever. So the, every small company engages these kind of firms. So Kathy, Kathy's got challenges in that regard. You don't become a, an accountant and get an MBA and learn a lot about uh, networking. So the first person I brought to that, to that lunch, we had it by club at Saratoga, I uh, invited Stephen Wares. A little plug for Stephen. What Stephen's company does is that when companies are going to go abroad, they're hiring a couple people in Germany, the UK, whatever, they have to onboard those people abroad. It's a very difficult process, very complex. Stephen helps these companies with all the issues surrounding the onboarding of these people overseas. He's very good at what he does, extremely good, and he's got a lot of good connections. But, but more importantly, he's a very engaging guy. And he knows, his, he knows his business upside. He's a real professional. And he comes to the table with a lot of life and a lot of enthusiasm. The minute I even mention it to him, Bob, oh, it's a great idea. We got to go do that. So I invited him to lunch with Kathy. So the three of us have co-founded this group. Of course, I'm the catalyst behind it. But the very fact I could engage Stephen and Kathy to be excited about it, then I knew this was going to be a good group, right? So to get the three of us figured out the kind of people we wanted to invite. Some were Kathy's friends, some were Stephen's friends, and some were my friends. That even made it better. So we all have taken the, in the game. And all the people who were invited know that if they, don't, if they shouldn't be in the group, we'll just ask them, this is the wrong group for you. So we'll tell you a year from now it's going to work out. But I can tell you I'm most excited about this. I've, I've started three other groups. 
But now I'm going back to the other groups and figuring how we, how we can re-engage them and make them stronger. Because if you can make the group strong and you can have the success where actually through a new introduction, you help somebody solve a problem, now you're a friend for life because you, their client was happy. And Bob, thank you for that introduction. That's what I'm looking for. And that helps you build your network. And think about the importance of all that. It's really cool. So that's, those are magic moments when all of a sudden you're saying thank you for somebody to an introduction that you made to them and they solved a problem for a client. That's a really big deal. It's a big, big deal. Now you have your own company, Link SV. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, you kind of get the gist of what I'm talking about here. I'm really involved with companies. So what I want to do, what I am doing, is I'm tracking currently 15,600 companies in the Silicon Valley Valley that come out of medical, the whole medical device community, the med, the med sector, the biotech sectors, and all the tech sectors. And what we do is we track their boards of directors, their key people, down through director level and even some outstanding individual con contributors, advisory board members. We track their investors, the uh, private equity people, the venture capital people, angel investors, corporate investors. We track also their customers and partners. Well, if you can imagine putting it all in a, jumbling it all together and shaking, shaking the ball, out comes all these interesting people. So we connect all the dots. How do we connect the dots? Let's suppose a small company is trying to raise their A round of capital. And the, CF, the CEO or the team is talking to Sequoia Capital. And they're looking for their first, their, in fact, they were told, until you get a world-class VP of sales and a VP of marketing, come back and see us later, right? Well, wouldn't it be nice to talk to a company who already has had a, a, one of these people coming out of a Sequoia company? So we can go into Link SV and put in Sequoia Capital, and we're looking for a VP of sales, and up will come 75 form people who have worked in a Sequoia company. There's a use case for you. Because that company is, says, geez, I should be calling these people. So when I said to you that I'm helping all these young companies point them to how to raise capital, that could be a method. I could show them, company, I could show them investors, VCs or angels who have raised capital, who have expertise in that area. That'd be a way. It's called connecting all the dots. Okay. So most of my customers, however, are service providers. So think of this. Anybody who's a service provider in Silicon Valley, when they start their, when they're planning for their next year, this now being 2020, whoever they work with are probably going to up the ante and probably have to bring in another 10 or 15% new business. Going into the year, they probably lost 25% of the business because of acquisition. 5% they didn't do a good job or lost some business and 20% because they, companies, companies got acquired. They have a really big delta of what they're trying to meet this next year. Where are they going to get that business? They're going to go back to everybody they know. Get, you get a little tired asking the few people you know well. So what do they do? They go out to meetings. They meet, try to meet people. All these things you think. They try to stay active and work the network. So our, our business proposition is, look, in Link SV, we connect all these dots. And we'll show you all these interesting people you should be connecting with and all these target companies you should go after. The thing I'm thinking about these days, which is prevalent in my mind, is if you found a group of companies, let's make an example, second round companies that just raised a large amount of money in relation to their first round, three times, if two times the amount is normal and you're excited to get eight on top of your four, then 12 million on top of four is a big deal. And that board of directors, is, those guys are very excited. So if those companies have raised a bunch of capital and those are companies you want to meet, then you use Link SV to see with our LinkedIn tags, who are the key people in those companies. So now you just click on that and see how you're connected. 
I'm connected to everybody. Everybody is Silicon Valley, my second degree. It's hard to find someone not connected. So what would I do? I would see how I'm connected to that person because now we share a whole bunch of first-degree connections. And this happens to me every time I do this. Oh my gosh, here's all these people I know really well. Well, two events are going to happen. One is I'm going to select the most likely people who are connected at first degree to my target and how they might be able to help me make a connection. But all these other people are people I haven't talked to for a while. So there's probably a half a dozen people that I should be reconnecting with anyway, not just, not just behalf on this target company, but for all these other reasons. Now, I've been telling people this for the longest time. I've started to do it in the last week for myself, and I just, I'm having these aha moments of these people I know really well. And the reason I'm doing it is because we just released our version two. And our version two is a big uplift from our version one. Version two means we're now uh, mobile uh, responsive. We have this newsletter now, is, is, it go, goes out to everybody on a daily basis. But you know, 80% of people are on, their, are on their smartphone, on their mobile. They're not looking at a PC like you and I might be occasionally. I'm married to my PC, but those people are out and about. In a month or so, we're going to put email addresses every, to every person that comes on that newsletter. How about the fact that you saw this interesting company, you had a connection through a friend, you called your friend and said, by the way, their biggest problem, they're, doing, they're do, launching a project in the UK, and our focus is, we've done a lot of projects for the UK, something looks similar. That's a lot better than saying, by the way, could I call on you for business? I'm, I, need, I think it'd be a fun company to talk to. So I'm, I'm thinking about all these things. And so that's, our version two is very important to us. And we're going to be open source. A lot of things downstream that are going to be valuable to these people. Now, Entrepreneur also runs in your family. You have very accomplished sons. Can you talk a little bit about the company that they founded? And also, can you talk about why not a tech company? I need no notes for this conversation. So my boys went to Cal Poly. And when they were there, my son David had a friend who went, ab went abroad to Japan for a year. And he came back and told his mom that he wanted to go abroad. Well, his mom, <laughs> my wife, studied abroad. She studied in Italy. And she went on digs. My wife's a linguist, and she's been all over the world. And so when she heard that David wanted to go abroad, she couldn't wait to help him on that. So David applied, and he, went, he took a year off, and he went abroad to, uh, to France for a year. Then he stayed for another year, and he spent time in Germany and Spain. And then his little brother wanted to go abroad. So his little brother went to France and Spain. So both my kids had two years abroad. When they came back, speaking fluent French, and particularly speaking Spanish, they're now at Cal Poly. So David one day was at Cal Poly at the, uh, wandering around at the uh, Thursday night farmer's market. And he meets another guy who's, they both had guitars, and they're speaking Spanish and having a good time, and they're... At that time, David was working for a small computer company that one of his buddies had started. And so Alejandro was telling David about this dream he had to save this rainforest in Paraguay because uh, his, in, his family owned this big, giant rainforest. And when David heard the story about saving this rainforest, he called us up the, the next night and said, Mom and Dad, Alex and I are going to start this company and we're going to do this, but we're going to save this rainforest. And on this rainforest, there's a jaguars, and, and there's a million species of, of birds, and uh, you can't imagine. And we can do all, what are you going to do? Well, we're going we're gonna to harvest yerba, yerba mate. What's yerba mate? Well, first of all, I never even heard of yerba mate. And so this is what we're going to go do. First of all, my son, David, he has a lot of leadership skills, 
and you don't stop him in his tracks. He's you know he marches to him, and I was very impre- I was I loved it when he was younger that he was not influenced by a, bat, a lot of kids to do what they did. He he marched to his own drummer, and so this is what he wanted to do. So he and Alejandro start this company. Their goal was to import a yerba mate from this rainforest that the family owned. First thing it involved was was to get this yerba mate certified organic. Otherwise, it was, you could not sell it in the states. Now in South America, all the gauchos drink yerba mate, and they live to 105, and, but they're, they drink till they can't see straight, and they eat a lot of meat, but they live forever. So they knew there were a lot of qualities, and there are a lot of qualities in yerba mate. Basically, although it, it looks like tea and acts like tea, it's, if I say tea around my kids, I'm in big trouble. But anyway, they harvest the tea, doesn't touch any processes, it's sun-dried, and, and it's crushed into small little fiber, little small little bits. And eventually, it gets into, your, into a cup, and the cup is you add hot water to this cup, and you may have seen people wandering around Silicon Valley or somewhere down in Santa Barbara or in places in Colorado or Berkeley or here in Silicon Valley with a gourd and a bombija. The, the gourd is where the, you drink from the gourd, the bombija is the straw. And so they came to this nascent market to try and sell mate, yerba mate. And they started out really small. It was just Alejandro and my son David, and David recruited Stephen. My son Stephen had just been accepted to an advanced program at Cal Poly, calls us up and says, Mom and Dad, I got accepted to the specialized, closed graphic arts program. We're all excited, high-fiving each other. Two nights later, he calls us, Mom and Dad, I'm not going to go in the program. I'm going to go with David. Now, David, at that point, they had no money. This is a classic story. They had no money. They had a big dream, had no, no customers. But they were going to do this thing. So the first thing they did was they got Stephen to join the company, and they got a $50,000 grant or loan, I should say, from the, from the County Bank of San Luis Obispo, who believed in what they were doing, off of the strength of Alejandro senior project that he did for his senior product at Cal Poly. So now we got $50,000. Mom and dad put it, we put in some money, and they're off and running. And Stephen joins us. So they hunkered down. And I watched these kids, when we took my experience for Silicon Valley County, I watched these kids. They ate the cold pizza. They worked together. Nobody was getting paid. Our kids had Nothing. In fact, years later, when John's parents died, and the kids in, we made sure the kids inherited some money more than, rather than just us, Stephen, our son Stephen, had to lend the, comp- lend the company $100,000 just to stay in business. In other words, we believed in the company. So, but Stephen did. He was paid back much later. So anyway, our kids got started. They, their initial goal was to take the yerba mate, have it shipped from Paraguay, into the port, port of LA, take it out and get it processed. So they did, in the early days, they found processors. They were processing the tea, the, the mate, and their earlier customers were buying small amounts. They were selling initially to small stores. So their big break came when Trader Joe's made a $50,000 order. And Trader Joe's has the ability to order large amounts because they can order by region. So they made a big order. So the kids uh, at that point in time decided to, they, got, they had a Volkswagen bus, they had it all painted with mate, guate, guayaquil on the sides. And this, their sales were very small. I mean, we watched the company go from $1,000 a year to $20,000 to $100,000, you know, so forth and so on. So very early on, they got this Volkswagen bus, they traveled across the country to a lot of these trade shows. A lot of them were personal trade shows. Trade show. In fact, I've, I went on a six-week in their Volkswagen van, bus if you would, and we traveled the country. And, but then they got the eye of Whole Foods. 
And so what happened with Whole Foods was they asked them to come down to Austin, Texas, where Whole Foods was headquartered. And they did. Whole Foods loved what they And that's the that point in time when I flew and I met them, we traveled. But so Whole Foods liked what they did. And so all of a sudden, Whole Foods took an interest in what they were doing. They were starting to get, to get into company markets. So we watched the company grow from 2 million to 4 million. Along the, the way they were growing, we were getting more of a penetration, basically off the, off the backbone of, I'd say, Trader Joe's and Whole Foods. And so what happens in this business is you try to get the attention of distributors. So very early on, the kids were down in, at the Anaheim trade show where everybody goes to show their words. You're back, you're, back, you're back in building number five in the bottom floor in the basement with a little card table with a little tablecloth across it. And people come by and you're hoping to attract somebody's attention. So David had the idea, forget all this. We'll get seven great companies together and we'll have, a, we'll have seven tables. So all of a sudden, these kids were getting more notice. They'd go to trade shows. And basically, they got Sam Bazan was part of that group that has become very well known and three or four other companies that were well-known. Uh, one of the companies got acquired for a lot of money, a hemp company. And so the company was getting more attention. And as they grew, uh, then they got a distributor. And the first distributor they got was a company called Mountain Peoples, which is a big deal to get Mountain Peoples. Because what would happen is distributors would say, well, why, why should we carry you on? Who knows about your product? They didn't want to do any heavy lifting. They just wanted to, oh, yeah, there's, they wanted to place the product because people were asking for it, right? They learned that very hard question. So they learned very early on. They had to be able to create their own demand. So that's why they went around their Volkswagen bus and created demand and got Whole Foods, did all these things, and they continued to create demand. And so they started doing very well, and they were growing at 25% a year. So I watched them go from 12 to 16 to 18 to 25 to 40, and now the company's doing over $100 million a year. Along the way, they outgrew Mountain, Mountain Peoples, and they, were pick, and they were then working with Unify. And Unify is the largest company in the country, in this community, doing these kind of products. And so they were with Unify and they're getting, and that's how they help them grow. But now the, the story gets even more interesting because we attracted a world-class person who knew how to grow companies in this space. And the guy was like a Navy SEAL and he had done this globally. I mean, when I tell you a Navy SEAL. So Brian, we were courting Brian for a long time. And so about two and a half years ago, Brian joined the company. And Brian is a global logistics genius. And we had also attracted a guy to the company who put a lot of his own money in, who became, who, ran, who became our marketing VP. And he knew Brian personally. So Brian joins the company. This whole new plan emerges. And here we are with Unify, this very large distributor. And the new plan was to take them out because we were going to build our own distribution system. So we now have about 250 vehicles that we lease from General Motors, the Chevy Bolts, they're energy powered, and they're driven by these individuals who now drive into these, what we call our hot pocket markets, or I call it hot, hot pocket, anyway, who are distributing into Santa Barbara, into, into Colorado, into Austin, anyway. The strategy was to not do a lot of radio advertising and waste a lot of money, no, to go into our hot markets. In fact, my son David's major plan, we had to part with our first VP of marketing who wanted to do a lot of radio advertising. And so David developed this pocket strategy, which has become very successful. And so now we are um, very heavy in, the, in these uh, small emerging markets. And subsequent to that, my son Stephen, who designed all the packaging for what the, you're drinking mate right now, he had to morph his position into another role because we have agencies doing things. And so Stephen now 
because he has a, a, a good, good computer experience and knows about SEO and all this, has designed a strategy for the company to be able to understand our markets better, to understand the last mile, who the customers are. So now his software that he has put together can identify our case sales, how they're growing in each segment, what we need to do. We, we can already tell you when a customer's going on a business trip, we can tell you the seven stores within you know, a half a mile of his hotel, whatever. We have a lot of things we can do. Now our company has morphed into all these drivers. And incidentally, a hundred of these drivers and as many as we can hire are coming out of uh, incarcerated institutions because these people are getting released. And the, the fellow who runs that program had done 10 years of hard, hard, hard time in prison. And he's also been acknowledged and photoed with President Obama because this young man is, is reformed. We have hired all these people from the prison system and nobody has gone back to prison. We're very, very proud of this program. And we're traveling the country trying to find the right kind of people to bring in that program. But anyway, so we've replaced a good deal of, of Unify and we still have Unify engaged in some places. But this whole program, identifying our strong markets and growing that way has become a very strong part of our company, ethos of the company, and it's going to continue that way. And of course, our direct program, direct-to-sale program has become very important. Yeah. So what's some advice you can give parents out there to encourage entrepreneurship with their own children? Well, first of all, both my kids told me at different stages they were going to join the startup company. I had to bite my tongue because I had actually invited David to come up to Silicon Valley from Cal Poly. I had personal connections at Silicon Valley Bank and also Seagate with the CFO out there. I got David some really strong introductions and he said, Dad, that's not what I want to do. I've been gone to school in Europe and all these things. He, he was thinking, he was, had a different viewpoint of what he wanted to do in life. So I had to step back and sort of, which was hard for me, we wish you the best of luck. And I said, look, you need to go. And from my perspective, you know, my kids should have gone somewhere and, and worked for a large company and get a lot of experience. Most parents would think that way. Look, I don't understand what you're trying to do, but I know one thing, if you go to work for a large company, they're going to spend a lot of money on you and give you a lot of training. And this is what happens if you're lucky to get engaged by it with a large company. They'll pour $700,000 of you into training and experiences. And then when you get some experience, you can then branch off. Well, that's the training. That's, that was my thinking. However, a lot of young people today with the, with the growth of the internet are very attracted and a lot of their friends are starting companies very early on. I'm not sure they know the journey, how hard it is, but then again, they're learning life's experience. I like to tell them, because I helped the Haas School at Berkeley, and I talked to a lot of these young people, that if you go to work for a company, that you may get a chance to work in an environment where you're talking to a lot of customers to make all these customer relationships. You have some visibility, and you learn a lot. If you're laboring trying to build this small little company in darkness, with no customers, and it goes nowhere, maybe you learn nothing about the customer, which is so vitally important. What you learned was well, the death knell for a small product. I'm not sure how good that is, how that all that translates. I'm sure you learned something. So I think there's a big risk for these young people today that are going to go out because it's so alluring to join a company. I'm not sure, sure what the great value is. So I'm still, I'm still telling people, Unless you have this incredible world-class experience that just, it's just so compelling, you almost almost have to drop out of school for it or whatever. You should give some thought to, if you had the ability to do some internships that are paid with good companies, you're going to learn a lot. And when you look at, by the way, when you look at all these people that are joining the venture capital firms, 
Go look at their resumes. They've done a lot of internships, paid and unpaid. Invaluable set of experiences. So I think school's out on this. But as far as parents are concerned, I think they need to understand that we all came out of a different environment. My parents came out of the Depression. So I have a little bit of depression mentality. And that's why I'm fortunate that I've saved my money. I've made good investments. I've been cautious what I've done. And I, I take my risks when they're measured, when I can afford to take a risk. Maybe, and that's why I go all in in some of these early stage companies, but I can afford to, you know, to take a loss, whatever. But these young people haven't thought of it necessarily about that, but maybe they can still live at home and say, I don't know. But there's a lot of risk involved. So parents, they have to be pretty careful, can't be, you know, can't be too judgmental because their kids aren't going to do what they, what they tell them to do anyway. The most important things parents can do anyway is have a, is have a strong relationship with their kids. The most important thing that kids can have, young people can have a strong relationship with their parents because their parents are, are really going to be their best friend because now they're somewhere between 18 and 25 years old and they don't have a lot of life experience and they need to know how to get car insurance and how to do this and how to pay bills. And their parents are the ones who may not be able to pay for it all, but can certainly give them good advice. So I think it's really important for parents and, and their kids to have really good relationships. Kids may not understand their parents and call them a bunch of old whatevers, and the parents may not understand the kids. But they're the strongest relationships they can ever have and keep those bonds going. And if they're lucky, their parents may be in business or be in environments where they do understand and they can be helpful and maybe make an introduction or two, but don't count on it. So for the kids, they need to, just like they learned, they chose their classes in school, or they're like good professors, or they had their friends they really like, they need to choose their friends in business very carefully as they go forward. It's all about time. All we have in this world is time. In these formative years, if you can, if you can invest in these next five years, after all, when you're 21 to 26, you can blow that easily on just having a lot of fun. But did you walk away with some good friends and some good relationships? Well, hopefully you did both. Hopefully you were scuba diving and like, look at my kids these days are surfing. They go on all these great surfing trips twice a year. It's a lifestyle company. They have a lot of friends. My kids right now are, as we speak, they're up at Tahoe last week. Dave was down in Costa Rica with the kids for a month. I mean, I'm watching my kids really enjoy. It's not about working all the time. So it's a good balance of work and play. Hopefully along the way, in, those, in these years between 20 and 30, They've built a lot of strong relationships that are, are the foundation of what they'll be doing further on. Yeah, that's how I feel. So, Bob, you have a ton of energy. Your spirit's uplifted. What advice do you have for people just to have fun in life? I have a lot of thoughts about that. It's about a six-hour conversation. But I kind of alluded earlier that you need to save as much money as you can along the way. Because somewhere an opportunity is going to come about. And when you're young like this, you can afford to do things that don't cost money. When my kids were hanging out and they were building, building Guayaquil, I can assure you, they drank a lot of mate, they sat around a big circle, they told stories, and they stuff they did, they didn't spend a lot of money. But they had the, the most fun they ever had. And other, other startups will tell you the same thing, other people will tell you. The most fun they had were the early years and that journey and a lot of the unknowns. But if you think that you need to go to a lot of concerts and spend a lot of money and go to fancy restaurants, you're not cut out for this. So my first suggestion is you got to really enjoy these early years 
and enjoy things that don't cost money. If you think you have to keep up with the Joneses and wear, the, wear all the fancy clothes and do all the fancy, it's the wrong place to be. These early years are important for you because at some point, you're going to want to make some investments either in your own company or somebody else's company. And it takes a little stockpile. That's hard to do right now because there's a lot of things that are tearing at you. You're dating or you're married and you've got children. A lot of expenses. Easy for me because I'm financially comfortable to, to be cavalier about this. Early on, save up. So you're not driving the latest car. Drive a five-year-old car. In fact, your investors don't want to see you driving those fancy cars anyway. Hunker down. Suck it up a little bit, right? But then again, that's going to help you later on in a big way. So that's important for you. And then you also, it's all about networking. Now, I haven't talked a lot about it directly about this. Everybody you meet today that's successful has been a good networker. So look inward. First of all, you got to learn to be a good communicator. What does that take? You got to be willing to think beyond outside your own skin. How can you help somebody else? Have a good conversation. What's your biggest problem? Good conversations lead to friendships. That leads to, well, how can I help you? And all that tends to build people that you build friendships for a long time to come. And if you think you're ever going to stop networking, you're not. In the dot-com era, when we had the dot-com bomb and every company was at half-mast, the company that survived were the people who knew how to network and networked actively. So you're always raising money or you're always going to be seeking good people. But the first thing you want to be is you want to be the kind of person who's approachable, has a good personality, who is not all about themselves, who's engaging, who's a good listener, who's a good contributor. All that's important. Those are people that you want to get. And ideally, they're also people that have a lot of common sense and a lot of business energy and a lot of good contacts themselves and are doing good things. Boy, if you can gather and those kinds of people into your business network, that's a really important part of what you're going to do downstream. And I, I love to call somebody who I haven't talked to for a while, but I know they're a good person. Why do you know they're going to talk to me? Because I haven't bothered them for the last year and a half with a bunch of stupid requests. They know if I come with one good thing, they know it's important to me. So that's, these are really important things. And Bob, if anyone wants to find out any more information about LinkSV, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing it? First of all, our big thing is this daily newsletter we produce now that tells you who just raised venture capital every day, new companies being formed, who got acquired, all these key people. So sign up for our newsletter. Just go to linksv.com and, and you can sign up for free, what they call a freemium model. So you have a basic model for free. And if you like what, do, what we're doing enough, we might even earn a membership for $50 a month. But basically, on our freemium model, you're going to be able to get our newsletter. So that's pretty cool. And you can also reach me. I'm all published all throughout, all throughout LinkSV. Yeah. Great. So we'll have all that information in the show notes, or we'll have information on the show and our other episodes. So in this episode, we talked about Shmuel Silverman's episode. We also talked about Ben Bartlett's and blockchain and many others. But I also want to thank Brett Sharnow, who was also a guest on Silicon Valley. He made the introduction to Bob Carr that allowed today's interview to happen. So thank you, Bob. Thank you, Shmuel, who introduced me to Brett and all the other people that have made some amazing connections and really supported this channel. So, Bob, I want to say thank you again for your time today. Well, thank you uh, for doing this. A lot of fun for me. I was probably off track a bit, but it was great to have a nice conversation. So thanks again, yeah. And also to write a review on iTunes, share on your network, and that encourages us to create great content like this. So once again, Bob, thank you for being on Silicon Valley. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.